The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Genesis chapter 5. It is good to be back up here. I should give a public thank you to uh, Ed and Jordan and Isaac for preaching for me. I was talking to uh, Bob and Ann Apple there last week at the end of the service, and we were talking about how it feels for me being in the audience, not that you care, but I'll tell you anyway, it's one thing when I don't preach and I'm in someone else's church, like that's, I don't know, it feels normal, it's like I shouldn't have anything to do, so if I don't do anything, I feel fine. But being here, sitting, letting everybody else do stuff, it's kind of like if you were sitting on your front steps, men, watching another man cut your grass when you could be doing it, but they're just doing it to help you, and it just... You feel like you should stand up and, and go do something? Or ladies, can you imagine just sitting at your dining room table watching another lady cooking and cleaning in your kitchen, even though you, you could be doing it, but you're not? That's, that's kind of how it felt. So it was awkward. So I, I'm really, really, really happy to be back up here. It feels good. Even though I enjoyed the break, it feels good to get back up here with you all. We're moving into a new section of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 5, and uh, We just finished, for those of you who are new to us, we just finished uh, the first story of Genesis, which is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through through the end of chapter 4. So we're moving into the second story of Genesis this morning. It goes from 5, 1 through 6, 8. But we're only going to look at chapter 5, and that's genealogy. So I know you were excited to get into that. Let's, Let's read the genealogy here in Genesis 5 and see what Moses is writing to us. He says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel, love that name, had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, continuing our walk through Genesis, and we are in a passage of Scripture this morning that is different to us. We're just not used to reading this kind of information and seeing the value in it. We're, we're just, it's foreign to us. But we know, Lord, that these are your words to us, and so I pray that as we work through the text this morning, that your Spirit will help open our eyes to what you're doing here. Help us understand the place of this passage here in the larger story of Genesis and that you will then use that understanding to make us more like Christ. Father, we know that everything that you've written to us is for our benefit. And so I pray this morning that we will see that clearly here in in the text today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So today we get to study biblical genealogy. And I know where that falls on most of your radar for things that you would be interested in doing today. It's right up there with watching paint dry or watching the grass grow or watching a Red Sox game. Any of those items (laughs) will work. You know, I love you. (laughs) You probably have this preconceived notion that biblical genealogy is just by default boring, and so therefore you probably shy away from reading it as often as you can. And therein you get to see one of three very common misconceptions that people have about biblical genealogy. The first one is that they're boring. And I'll admit, I'll be the first one to admit that some of them are. Uh, In fact, just a couple weeks ago in our small group, I don't remember why it came up, but we were talking about genealogies for something else, and I was, you can get that, whoever that is, and uh, we were talking about 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, which is nothing but nine straight chapters of genealogy. Nine straight chapters, and it is killer to read that. We're going to go to voicemail? Here we go. <laughs> nine straight chapters of genealogy, and it is killer to read that. I, every time I go through 1 Chronicles, I just die in those first nine chapters because it is name after name after name after name, and I admit that I get very bored with it, but despite our perception of them, the fact of the matter is, is that biblical genealogies really aren't very boring once you understand the purpose that the genealogy is playing in the, in the story that you're reading. And so if we can understand the purpose, then we'll get to see what the, the genealogy is really all about, and they can be quite fascinating at points. The second misconception is that they're linear. And you know what the word linear means? Okay, it means in a line. Okay, as, as, in other words, when we think of genealogies, we just assume that every single genealogy in the world looks and acts in the same exact way, that it goes from child to parent to grandparent to great-grandparent, etc. So I, I pulled up Prince William's genealogy here. Okay? If you've ever, how many of you have ever been on Ancestry.com? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Okay? So this is exactly, here, I'll move out of the way for a minute. This is exactly what it would look like if you're on Ancestry. You see him and then his parents, Prince Charles, Princess Diana, Prince Charles's parents, Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, 
her parents, those parents. It keeps on and on and on. If we had time in a bigger screen, I could show you every single descendant of, of Prince William all the way back to William the Conqueror, who was his 23rd great-grandfather, I believe. Uh, it's how they work. We think in, in terms of a linear genealogy. Well, the problem is, is that when we look at the biblical genealogies, some of them don't work like that. In some of the biblical genealogies, it skips people on purpose. So it'll go from child to grandparent to great-great-grandparent. And we're left scratching our heads going, why is it skipping around? Why is it leaving people out? Well, maybe it's because the author only cared about the most important people in someone's line, not everybody in someone's line. They didn't want to tell you everyone that they're related to, just the most important people. Or maybe they're trying to do something else. My point isn't to get into the nuances of these things. I'm just simply showing you that not every genealogy in the Bible is linear. The third misconception that we bring is that they're unimportant. And of all the misconceptions, I think that this one is probably the most common and the least admitted to. See, we, we just have this feeling that the genealogies really don't have any value for us. That if we could somehow read 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 in, in the Greek, in its original language, that it would really read like this, that all Scripture, with the exception of every genealogy section, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be complete and furnished for every good work. Because certainly, a genealogy section can't possibly teach me anything. It can't possibly make me complete and able to be a better equipped servant of God for anything. What am I supposed to learn? Not to name my kids weird names? Is that like the, the extent of what this, the value of these passages are? Well, I'm sorry if you feel this way because I have bad news for you. Even the genealogies are breathed out by God, which means that they're profitable for us and can equip us to do all the things that that God wants us to do. So Moses here, he's not wasting his time in Genesis chapter 5. There are important things here in this chapter that we need to understand if we're really going to get what he's trying to tell us here in this story. And so whatever misconceptions you've brought into the room this morning with you, about biblical genealogy, when I first said turn to Genesis 5 and you looked and saw what it was, whatever that first thought that went through your head was, please, as best as you can, try to, try to throw that out right now. Okay? Try as best as you can to approach this from a blank slate this morning because I want us to understand and see the value of this passage, particularly here in the story that Moses is telling us in these early chapters of Genesis. So, Having laid that foundation, having addressed the misconceptions that you may have brought into the room with you this morning, we want to ask and answer three questions about Genesis chapter 5 that I hope will help us see the value of this passage for what it really is. Question number one is this. What's the purpose? And what's the purpose of this genealogy? I told you that in order to really appreciate what it's doing in the text, we have to start by understanding the purpose of it. What's, it. what's its role, its function here in the story? And to figure this out, you have to look at two things. You have to look at context and content. How is Moses using this genealogy here at this specific point in Genesis? Okay, that's the context question. And then what clues, what information is he giving us in the genealogy itself that will help us understand what it's all about? Those were the questions that I was asking myself as I was studying this passage, trying to understand the purpose, and here is what I found. After working through those things, I came up with three purposes for this genealogy. First, 
It's here to connect the story of Adam to the story of Noah. That's what it's doing, okay? That's the context we find it in. We just finished what big story in Genesis? Okay, the story of the heavens and the earth. That went from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4. What story is coming after this story, do you know? Say it. The flood. Is that a small story or a big story? That's a big story. So we've got two big stories on either end, and in between these two big stories, we have this little story that's connecting the dots between them. This story is acting like a bridge to take us from what happened to that perfect world that God made, that we looked at, finished up a few weeks ago, into understanding what's about to happen to this world that God is going to destroy. So the story acts as a bridge. That's its first purpose. Second, it's here to set the stage for what's coming next. In other words, through the course of the genealogy, more so in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we're going to begin to see in greater detail what's wrong in the world. You said, well, we know what's wrong in the world. We saw it in the last story. It's sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Sin is what came in and destroyed this perfect world that God has made. Well, yeah, you know that, and that's right. But guess what? By the time we get to, to chapter 6, the world is so full of wickedness that there is only one man left who's righteous. So how do we go from just these few people who are sinning over here to a world filled with violence and wickedness? This genealogy is helping connect those dots for us so that we can see what's happening in the world, particularly in, as we get into chapter 6. Third, it shows us the lingering effects of sin. Because I hope as I was reading my, uh, the text to you this morning, I tried to emphasize one phrase. Did you catch the phrase I kept saying a little different than everything else over and over again? What was it? And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. You see it, I think, uh, was it nine times? No, eight times. Eight times in Genesis 5, you see that phrase, and he died, as Moses is repeating over and over again that God's pronouncement and warning of death that he gave back in chapter 3 is now coming to pass in the human race. Death is real and pervasive in this chapter. And so when I ask the question of what's the purpose of this genealogy, well, I answer it this way. It's to connect the story of Adam to the story of Noah so that we can understand what's coming next and see the lingering effects of sin. Easy enough? Okay. Let's ask the second question then. What are the features of this particular genealogy? Because every genealogy has certain things, certain details, certain features, or things that are specific just to it that are important for us as students to understand if we're really going to get what the genealogy is all about. And in this particular genealogy, there are three features that deserve special attention. First, we have the pattern. Did you notice how similar almost all of the, the accounts were of the people? Okay, they all follow the same basic pattern. Moses is going through ten generations from Adam. Adam to know it's ten generations to show us what is happening in the human race. And as he works through that, he follows a general pattern with each person. It looks something like this. When A had lived X years, he fathered B. After that, A lived Y years more, and he had other sons and daughters. A died. Okay? That's the pattern. Change the names, change the years. It works like this pretty much with every person. That's the pattern listed. There are a few exceptions, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. 
But you understand now that if Moses is doing it this way, he's doing it for a reason. He's trying to draw our attention to something. And before we look at what those exceptions are that I think he's trying to draw our attention to, let me take just a moment to go down a quick rabbit trail with you here at the very beginning. Remember I told you that not all genealogies are linear in the Bible, that some are different things? Well, guess what? Some are linear meaning that they give us a fairly complete account of what's going on. And as I look at this particular genealogy here in Genesis chapter 5, it seems to be linear. Moses gives us ten specific names, ten specific sets of numbers that can be easily plotted out in a timeline. And I put together an example for this, of this for you here. I'll back out of the way again. As you plot it all out, this is what it looks like. There's no gaps in the, in the account Everything works and makes sense. I included Noah all the way through his death by looking ahead a little bit. But you begin to see here that what it appears Moses is doing through this pattern is giving us a complete genealogy, a complete connection from Adam all the way to the story of Noah. And if you compare this genealogy to the other two times it's mentioned, 1 Chronicles 1 and Luke chapter 3, in both those cases, it's the same. And so by following this pattern, he's attempting to give us that full and complete bridge between story two and story four to help us understand what's going to happen. The first feature is the pattern. Second, and more importantly, we have the exceptions. See, if there wasn't a pattern, the exceptions wouldn't be exceptions. They wouldn't stand out. And so by giving us this pattern and then by changing it sometimes, Moses draws our attention to three specific people here in the story. The first exception is with Adam. And there are several things that are different about the account with Adam. For example, Moses begins by recounting Adam's privileges at creation. He's taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2. He reminds us that God personally created Adam that God made Adam in his likeness, in his image, that he made them male and female, Adam and Eve, that he blessed them and named them. All of this is taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and all the things we learned there about the privileges that were given to man. Next, Moses adds a detail that isn't included in all the other people that he lists out in the genealogy. If you look at the next few verses, he says that when Adam was 130... He fathered a son, how? In his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Well, what stands out to you about this description? Very similar to how God treated Adam. Just like God made Adam in his own image and likeness, now Adam makes a son, so to speak, in his image and likeness. Just like God names Adam, Adam is now naming his son. You say, okay, that's great. What's the point? Well, the point is is that part of the privileges that man has been given are being passed along. That Seth is just as much of an image bearer as was his father made by God. And the implications of that for us are going to be significant the deeper we get into the biblical story, that man will carry on not only the image of God inside of him, but also also the sin of Adam with us. Finally, we also see that the warnings and pronouncement of death are being fulfilled and passed along as well. And this really isn't an exception because almost all of them die. 
but I simply wanted to point out to you that here you begin to see God's promise fulfilled. Adam dies. Seth, his son, who is born in his image and likeness, who carries his sin, dies. His son dies. The next one dies. It continues on throughout humanity. Sin is having its consequence. They all die with the exception of one person. And that exception is with Enoch. Now, Enoch is the seventh descendant of Adam through Seth. I'll say that again because I'm going to test your memory here. Enoch is the seventh descendant of Adam through Seth. How many, does anyone, anyone, just raise your hand if you happen to remember me saying this about four weeks ago now. We were in chapter four. We were looking at Lamech. Not the same Lamech here. It's a different Lamech. We're looking at Lamech, and I pointed out to you that he was the sixth descendant from Cain and the seventh descendant of Adam through Cain. Do you remember that? Raise your hand if you remember me saying that. I told you it was important, but I didn't tell you why it was important. Well, here is why it's important. In chapter 4, Lamech and his actions, the seventh from Adam through Cain, serve as the ultimate example of what's wrong with Cain's line. He's godless. Remember that? He's ruthless. He's remorseless. He is the worst example from the worst line. And Moses shows that to us by the story he tells there in chapter 4. Well, now we turn over to chapter 5 and we compare that to Enoch. And he serves as the best example from the best line, if I can say it that way. He's the complete opposite of Lamech, showing that there is a completely different way that humanity can go. And Moses describes Enoch here as a man who walked with God. In fact, notice how Moses uses that pat, or excuse me, that phrase here in the pattern. It starts the same as all the rest. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. That's the same start everyone else gets. But then it changes. Instead of saying that Enoch lived after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters, Moses tells us that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. He simply replaces the word lived with the phrase walked with God. You see this change again in verses 23 and 24. Instead of saying that thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years and he died, Moses tells us that all the days of Enoch were 365 years that he walked with God, and that he was not, for God took him. Again, Moses replaces the statement of his death with the fact that he walked with God and was given or spared from death by a divine intervention. That's a, that's a pretty big exception here in the genealogy. It really stands out. Because of this man's relationship with and devotion to the Lord, he is spared from God's pronouncement of death, unlike any other person in this line. His life is characterized by this one phrase, that he walked with God. He doesn't live, he walks with God. He doesn't die, he walks with God. This phrase are like, it's like bookends on his life. And as you look through the scriptures to see how this phrase is used elsewhere, it's used to refer to a life that is lived in everyday fellowship and obedience to God. And that makes Enoch the second exception in the story. The third exception is with Noah. Noah's our third exception. And now, granted, it's kind of like half Lamech, half Noah, but that's confusing, so I'll just say Noah. Noah's father's name is Lamech, not the same guy from Genesis 4. And in verse 29, Moses interrupts the pattern 
with an explanation of why Lamech names his son Noah. And here's what Lamech says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, obviously, I can't tell you exactly what uh, Noah was thinking when he said that, or excuse me, Lamech was thinking when he said that. But there's a part of me that wonders if perhaps he was hoping for something a little different than what actually happened. Because if you think about it, does Noah bring relief from the painful toil and labor of people's hands? Yes. Not, not through the way, though, that he was hoping. <laughs> they stop working because they all get killed. It, it's kind of an ironic statement, isn't it? That he is looking at his son saying, this is the one who will bring us relief. And sure enough, relief comes, but not through deliverance. It, it comes through judgment instead. And so while Lamech's words are a bit ironic, they do prove true in the end, and that's part of the reason that Noah stands out as an exception. The other reason is found in verse 32. You see that Moses begins the pattern, just like with everyone else, uh, by saying how old Noah was when he had his sons, but then it stops. And you know why it stops, because we're going to take a, a large section of time to look at Noah and all the things that happened around his life. And so Noah is the third and final exception here I'm, oh yeah, third and final exception. The third feature I wanted to show you are the ages of the people in this list. It's the third feature. Got confused on my slides. The ages stand out. Why? Because they're like unbelievably long. I mean, here's the list of them all put together for you. Adam, 930 years. Seth, 912. Enish, 905. Kenan, 910. Mahalalel, 895. Jared, 962. Enoch, the young one, 365. Methuselah, the old one, 969. Lamech, 777. Noah, 950, by the time you finish his story. These ages are incredibly long, and we're, we're forced to ask the question, can they possibly be correct? I mean, does he really expect us to read this and believe that people lived that long prior to the flood? And the simple answer to that question is, yes, he does. That everything written and the way he writes it and the way he includes the information, it's intended that we as readers will look at this and accept this at face value. And while we're sitting there thinking, this, this can't possibly be true, all you need to do is remember that uh, Moses isn't the only person who talks like this. See, there's a, a, something called the Sumerian King List. I put a picture of it here behind me. Ever heard of the Sumerian King List? Most people haven't. It, the, the earliest one of these is like 2000 BC, about the time of Abraham. So this would be after, uh, excuse me, before Moses was born. And it is well described. It's a list of the Sumerian kings. Okay? So you think, wow, that's great. Well, here's what's interesting about this list it's divided into two groups. A group of kings that lived before the Great Flood and a list of kings that lived after the Great Flood. And if you're not familiar with this fact, and we'll talk about it perhaps more a little bit later on, but the Bible isn't the only place where we learn about the flood story. Many cultures have flood accounts in their history and in their, in their past. The biblical account, of course, we believe is the correct one. You see a reference to the flood here in this list, but that's not what's interesting necessarily about this list. What's interesting about this list is not only does it give a list of the kings, but it gives a list of their reigns, their ages, alongside of it. And when you look at the ages of the kings in the Sumerian list and you compare that to the biblical account, they're almost identical. It's interesting. 
The only difference is, is that the Sumerians used a different counting system. We use a base 10 system, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 300. We, we work that way. That's how the Hebrews worked. That's how the Greeks and the Romans worked. The Sumerians worked on a base 6 system. So when you read the list, it's like he lived 18,000 years. But when you fix that to make it base 10, it's like 800, 900 years, something like that. It's the same lengths of time on the Sumerian kings list as here. My point to you is simply that, that Moses isn't the only person who talks like this and that the long ages that are listed here are meant to be taken literally and I think are corroborated by extra-biblical material, not that they needed it, but it's there. Whatever reason, I can't tell you why, people lived longer before the flood and we're going to see that after the flood, both in the biblical account and in the king's list, the ages get progressively and progressively shorter. So these are features that you need to understand, things that I think make it fairly interesting. But here's the real question. What's the significance? Because I haven't really explained to you yet why this matters or why you should care. What are you supposed to learn from this? And I started trying to answer this question by thinking about it from Israel's perspective. Remember that Moses is writing to them. Here they are out in the wilderness. They have just been released from Egypt by God's divine hand. Now they're on the way to this promised land that they've never seen. They've got questions in their mind about who this God is, what he's doing with them, who they are as a people. They're trying to understand these things. How does this story help them answer these questions. Well, as I look through this, I see two things that I think Israel should have learned that would have been very valuable for them along the way. First, they should have learned that sin has consequences. Because what's that one phrase that keeps getting repeated all throughout Genesis 5? And he died. And, and why were they dying? They're dying because of sin. Because Adam and Eve chose to throw off God's lordship and live under their own lordship, now they have consequences placed upon them by God himself, and death is one of those consequences that will constantly affect the human race. When they look ahead and they see the flood and all that's going to come, they are reminded of the fact that sin has a consequence not just of death but of judgment too. That a day of reckoning will come. They should have been reminded of these things that the sin has consequences. Second, they should have learned that life comes through grace, not through genealogy. And Enoch, of course, is the one who stands out here, right? He wasn't taken by God because he was a descendant of Seth, the godly line. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that it doesn't appear that all of Seth's descendants were godly people. But at least Enoch was. He's not saved, given life because of his family connections. What mattered was that he walked with God. And because he walked with God, because he lived a life of everyday fellowship and obedience, he received grace. And we'll talk about this more, just in, a, more in just a moment because we, we haven't figured out why he walked with God yet. But for now, just simply understand that the life he got to experience with God came through grace, not through genealogy. Why would that be important for Israel? Because they thought that their, their hope was in Abraham being a descendant of his, and that's not ultimately their hope. They should have been reminded that walking with God is not something that is inherited from our fathers nor passed on to our children. And just think about Enoch for a moment. His father, Jared, dies. I'm not saying he wasn't a godly man. I don't know. I know he died. His son, Methuselah, 
dies, same year as the flood, according to the, the account in Genesis 5. I'm not saying he died in the flood, just he died the same year. I know that, that later we're going to learn that no one is righteous in the whole earth except for Noah at the time of the flood, which means Methuselah wasn't walking with God, which should be a, a real wake-up call to us parents. My point is simply that Israel should have been reminded to give careful attention to these things, and so should we. Because the lessons from a genealogy like this are exactly the same for us as they would have been for Israel all those years ago. Sin still has its consequences, does it not? Consequences of sin are still death and judgment. And so here, all of us are gathered together in this room. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what Ed talked about a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2 was true of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead to God because of our sin. And because of our sinfulness, we were under God's wrath. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He was angry with us. He was ready to punish us, and rightly so. But in his great love and mercy, what did he do? He gave us his son, who did what in our place? died, who took what in our place? Our judgment. This is what Christ is coming to do. He's coming to take the consequences of our sin. Just just what we needed. And now look at us. Now, rather than fearing on our own death, we rejoice in Christ's death. I, I hope that as we were singing the songs this morning, the irony of singing about the cross stood out to you. We sing happily about an execution device. Why? It's because through the death of Christ on that device, we don't have to die. We sing about God's judgment happily. Why? Because Jesus took that punishment for us. And in its place, no longer having judgment, we now are adopted as sons? It's a complete reversal of everything that we've seen in Genesis through Jesus Christ and his death for us. Second, life still comes through grace, not through genealogy. You see, we never answer the question about why Enoch walked with God. Moses doesn't tell us. He just says that he does. And if that was all the information we had, we might be tempted to think that, that Enoch was just a great person who did a lot of good stuff, and that's, that's why God spared his life. Well, that's not the case at all. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read these words about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And stop right there. That's the end of, of the writer's statement about Enoch. He says he's, he's taken up because of his faith. This is the explanation for all that he did. But I'm not done yet. I want to make an application to you. Verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do, 
Do you understand what he's saying to us here? He's telling us that our life with God is not dependent on anything we do. Rather, it is 100% dependent on our faith with him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. And so if you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Christ, I just ask you to let these words sink deeply into your soul. That it doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter what churches you've attended, how much money you've given, how kind you are, or anything else. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Unless you believe in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, nothing you do will make Him happy. Nothing. And so from Enoch, from Genesis chapter 5, we get to see, once again, that grace comes through what? Faith alone and nothing else. And guess what? If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus, the message is the same for us. Because I know that we're all tempted to feel like God loves us more when we're up in the morning, we're reading our Bibles, and we're doing this and doing that. We think that, if, that somehow His favor to us is contingent upon our actions, and we're reminded that without faith, none of those actions matter. Because the writer of Hebrews isn't writing this to unbelievers. He's writing it to Christians, to people who claim to know Jesus as their Savior. That this is what you need to remember. That you still need grace by faith alone and everything. That it's not a striving for us to, to do more, but to believe more, to trust more, to rely fully on the gospel and anything and everything we do. And so <laughs> we find ourselves in this position that we still need grace by faith today, just like we did on the day we first believed. And so I hope you can see why I don't think this genealogy is boring at all. I think it's here to remind us of the consequences of sin and of our need through grace, through faith in Christ alone. And if the Spirit opens our eyes to these things, if it, the Spirit will allow us to grasp this, if He will in His grace allow us to pass this on to our children and, great, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then maybe we can have a genealogy someday that is one of faith and not a failure like so many others we see in the Scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded by the repetition of that phrase that death is coming for all of us. It is a consequence of sin that is pervasive. All humans experience it. Lord, we're also reminded, though, this morning that our life is not dependent on our genealogy, our family, our actions. The life we ultimately need is dependent on one thing, and that is your grace, which is only given out through faith. And so this morning, Lord, in this room, I have no clue who's here. I, I can't help but assume that there are people in this room today who do not know you as Savior. They are trying to please you through some other means, through thinking that they're good enough or that they're nice enough or they're not as bad as others. Lord, today will those words from Hebrews 11 be driven deep into their soul that without faith it is impossible to please you. There's nothing we can do outside of simply believing. Lord, may we be reminded that grace is what we need 
that the only hope we have for life is through this, through you and through your son's death on the cross for our sins. Will you take that simple truth and burn it onto their hearts so that they will find no rest today until they find their rest in you and turn in faith and believe. And for all of those in here who are believers in Jesus, Lord, we still struggle with this. We still want to find your favor through our actions, to think that somehow we can be good enough to make you happy, that you love us more when we do right, you love us less when we don't. Will you remind us today, will the Spirit open our eyes to see that your grace is still by faith alone? It has nothing to do with, with what we do, but who we are in you. Lord, this passage is very helpful for us because it brings us back to the fundamental truths of what salvation is all about. The sin has consequences, but that life comes through grace. And so we thank you for the time that we have this morning to study. I pray that you will help us to learn from these things and become more like Christ as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.